So we're reading from Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, through to chapter 2, verse 11, and that's on page 831, the Red Pew Bible. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Okay, well let us pray and uh, think about this good passage before us. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you for this uh, time that we share together now. Uh, please help us to understand something more of uh, this section of the Bible. And above all, Lord, help us to be those who uh, respond to it in faith, uh, seeking to obey you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder what comes to your mind when you think about uh, the word unity. Do you think about your family, how united it is? What about uh, our church, our unity as a church? Or perhaps the church that you used to go to, uh, how united was it? What might come to mind for you is your workplace, uh, whether it's a, a very united one or whether there's divisions there. Or if we think about, at a scale a bit higher, uh, the federal government. We've seen uh, interesting times for federal, federal government, both uh, Labor and Liberal, haven't we, with, um, with respect to unity or lack thereof. If you're into sport, you might think about the, the Australian cricket team and how uh, united they are at the moment compared to how they have been. Or perhaps uh, sporting groups for your kids. Are they part of teams that have been united or not so? Maybe even our local neighbourhoods. If you think about the neighbourhood that you live in, whether the neighbours talk with each other and are warm and friendly or not so. Well, in each of the groups that I've mentioned above, 
there are always challenges to unity, aren't there? And it's interesting, isn't it, as we look at God's Word today, that's one of the topics that comes out, is unity. It was relevant for Paul back 2,000 years ago, and it's just as relevant a topic for us today, isn't it? Well, why is it that unity can be something that's hard to get? Why can it be so hard to attain and then actually maintain, even if we, if we do get it? What are the ingredients, if you like, of a unified group? But more importantly, uh, not just any group, what are the ingredients for a unified church? Well, that's some of what we're going to be looking at in this passage today, and we'll be thinking carefully about God's wisdom for us uh, and how we should be uh, putting to action His will for our lives. But first, the context of this part of the Bible. Uh, Paul, for a time now, has been writing about himself. He's been reflecting on his time in jail, in chains, and wondering whether he's going to come out alive or not. And he's thought about the advantages of being with the Lord in glory, but also the advantages of being with the Philippians so that he can see them progress with their joy in the faith. By the time we get to today's passage, we, st we see that the focus starts to move from Paul and he starts to focus on the experience of the Philippians. And he encourages them. He encourages them to stand firm together. That's what we start to see in chapter 27 and 28. I'll read some of that if you're following along in your Bibles there. He says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. Whether Paul makes it out of jail alive or not shouldn't matter to the Philippians and how they live. He wants them to live their lives worthy of the gospel. They've been saved. Now the challenge is for them to live out godly lives uh, in thanks to God for what he's done in giving them salvation. And so whether the Paul is there or not, the challenge for them is to have their motivation for Christian living tied to their experience of salvation. Uh, not the fact that Paul's there with them in person. He wants them to do what's right apart from his presence. And he reminds them to stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. And this is the idea that he wants them to not only hold on to the gospel, uh, as a church, but also to promote it uh, in the world where they live. And the way that they are to do this is described as standing uh, in a unified way, standing firm in one spirit, contending as one man. Now here the church is encouraged to be like an orchestra or a band that's working well. A, a, a band where all the players can tend to play the songs well in conjunction with each other. That's what it looks like when it's working well. That's the theory that people try to take into account each other and play their part. But when it's not going so well in a band, it's not great, is it? I've been to enough uh, orchestra practice sessions where I've dropped the kids off 
and uh, heard people blasting trumpets and honking on trombones and clarinets, kids beating drums, all independent of each other. And they aren't contending at those times to play in a unified way. And that's usually before the conductors actually got them together and say, right, uh, that's enough of that. Let's start putting this together in the right way. And I must say, in those times, I'm very glad to get to the exits of the hall and think, I can't wait to get out of there. And I feel sorry for the conductor before before the group gets its act together. Paul doesn't want his church or our church to be like a haphazard orchestra practice session. He encourages the church to stand together in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. That's the goal. And that's going to remember what our unity is in. Our unity is not in geography. It's not because we live on the mid-north coast in a central part of town that unites us. Our unity is not in the fact that we meet each week in this building with its yellow-coloured windows and the, the new blinds up the front. We're not united in any of those things, are we? We're called to be united and contend as one man for the gospel of Christ. Our unity is a gospel unity. Our challenge is to be those who hold on to the gospel message carefully and also to promote it in the community where we belong, with the people that we rub shoulders with. And so the challenge for us as a church is to stand together in this calling to hold on to the gospel and promote it. Well, in so much as we do that, we may face some opposition and some suffering, which brings me to my second point, suffering for the gospel. And we see that in the end of verse 28 through to 30. Paul writes, Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but you will be saved, and that by God. For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So the tone of the passage now changes somewhat, uh, becomes a little more serious as Paul reflects on suffering. He takes it for granted that the uh, church will face some sorts of opposition. And yet at the same time, that's a sign that they are actually going through the narrow gate. They're on the the little gate on the narrow road that leads to life and that their opponents are actually passing through the wide gate on the broad road that leads to destruction. That's what Jesus taught, that truth divides and that this is a sign if they've got opposition that they're on the right side. Paul describes suffering for Christ as something that's granted to God's people. God grants belief in Jesus, that's that's the comforting thing, it's a good thing. And yet he also grants for his people to suffer for him. And that's a more daunting prospect, isn't it? And although we hear about dreadful things happening to Christians overseas in the Middle East and in parts of Africa, our experience of suffering is still a reality, or can be a reality, but it's just of a less extreme form. Uh, Those who've experienced distance from family members or friends, those who've been marginalised at work or in 
the clubs and associations they belong to because of their allegiance to Christ understand that there is something of a price to pay for being a Christian and that reality can't be overlooked. And so there's a, a real sense in which uh, suffering does happen and it's part of what is normal for the Christian life. That's what Paul says to Timothy. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so the message is that if we find ourselves experiencing some hardship on account of holding on to the gospel and our, and our faith in Jesus as Lord and Saviour, that's something that is granted to us as the people of God. It's something we need to expect in degrees and yet it's also a sign that we'll be saved, which is a comfort. Well, to those who are united in Christ and contend for the gospel, Paul now calls them to think back to their past Christian experience. He wants them to think back to where they've come from and then to serve with humility. We see this in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. He says, If you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Well, we've touched on suffering, but there are also comforts that go with the Christian life, aren't there? And some of those things have been listed to us in verses 1 and 2. The Christians have been united to Christ. They've experienced something of God's love, are recipients of the Holy Spirit and experience times of tenderness and compassion, presumably from belonging to the family of God and other believers. They've enjoyed these comforts and in some ways their feelings should be following these facts. Uh, these things help us to actually live with hope in life. It's an optimistic life. And now Paul's calling the church to build on these things and complete his joy, he says, as they grow to be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. Now, this is the language not of divisions and of factions, is it? This is the language of being uni unified, uh, unified in the gospel, which has already been introduced earlier. It's a unity based on the fact that people share Jesus as their Lord and Saviour in common. That's what their unity is in. But that unity could be fractured, couldn't it? It could be threatened. And so Paul gives some practical teaching now in what follows so that unity can be maintained and preserved. And he encourages them to serve with humility. In verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others Better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Well, clearly selfish ambition and vain conceit aren't things which are going to build up the church, are they? They're not going to build up uh, any groups, in fact, are they? As a school chaplain, I, I have the uh, privilege and the opportunity at lunchtimes on Tuesdays and Thursdays to referee a bit of soccer uh, in the field uh, at school. 
And I'll, I watch the kids play, and at times I help out with some of the weaker teams. I must say I find that a bit satisfying to kick a ball around at lunchtime and pass it on to some of the kids who need a bit of help. But every now and again, a kid will come up to me, a bit downcast, a bit sad, saying, nobody's going to pass the ball to me. They're not passing it, Mr. Charles. Well, what should I do? Tell him to stop blubbering and run harder and get stuck into it? Well, no, I'd lose my job if I did that to start with. Um, that's not the, quite the role of the chaplain. Uh, and so I don't. I say to the team, listen, come on. Get your heads up. Have a look around and see who you, you, you can pass the ball to. Start playing as a team. And if I get the ball, I try to find that bad player of a kid and pass it to him to make him not so discouraged anymore. Because when nobody wants to pass the ball, the whole team starts to suffer because of selfishness. And when people are selfish, it seems to catch on. And others respond by being selfish too. And pretty soon you've got a, a pretty selfish group that nobody really wants to be a part of. Well, Paul doesn't want God's church going backwards, does he? He doesn't want people being selfish. And so, what am I trying to say? The application point here is that morning tea, pass the ball. No, that's not the application point, folks. Paul's dealing with a principle. He's dealing with an attitude. And he wants the people of God to live a different kind of way. How can the church avoid a different kind of culture to that? How can the church avoid a problem with selfish ambition and vain conceit? Well, the reality is that each one of us has to look at our own hearts, don't we? It's all very well to sit in sermons and think, oh, gee, this would have been a great sermon for so-and-so to hear. Well, it might not be that great a sermon, but some of these points are, you know, you think, well, this is good for somebody else. But the challenge is to look at our own hearts and to have the same attitude as that as Jesus, which we see in verses 5 to 11. Paul says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now this may have been an early hymn that Paul's quoting, and even today it's been put to music so we can sing this, this nice song. I won't sing it to you now. Uh, but the antidote to selfish ambition and vain conceit is to have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Uh, a lot can be said from these verses. They remind us that Jesus is pre-existing as the Son of God before he takes on the form of a servant. But the significant thing is Paul saying Jesus doesn't indulge in his rights as God when he comes to earth. Instead, he becomes a type of nobody. He's a servant. He doesn't come uh, as an emperor. 
and in his lowly status, he willingly lays down his life for us. And on account of this, God exalts him, raises him up, and he is called the Lord of all. Well, Paul wants us to look at Christ's example and to be like Christ. And so that's what he says in verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. He wasn't selfish. He looked out for our interests. And he became a willing, sin-bearing sacrifice. And we're called to have his attitude. Well, we're going to wrap it up there. So what kind of um, church are we? Are we a united church? Standing firm in one spirit? contending as one man for the faith of the gospel? Are we willing to be people who suffer uh, in some measure for that gospel? And are we those who serving with humility, having the same attitude as Jesus Christ, who made himself nothing, who didn't take up his rights as God, but became something of a nobody in order to serve us? Well, in closing, may God help us to be people who spend a bit of time looking at our own hearts and thinking carefully about uh, maybe areas where we've failed in this, where we need to repent and to live the kind of lives that God wants us to live and do that in uh, response to the salvation we've received. Not because we're trying to get saved, but because we have been saved. Uh, we should be living lives worthy of the gospel that we've, uh, we've become uh, recipients of. Let us pray that God will help us to be like that. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we do give you thanks that um, we've enjoyed uh, receiving the tradition that Jesus is uh, both Lord and Saviour. And we give you thanks for uh, the salvation that we have through Him, the forgiveness of sins. And Lord, we do pray that we would be a church which holds on to that gospel and promotes it uh, in the places where you put us. Lord, we do pray that we would even be people who are, are willing to even suffer uh, for the gospel. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to preserve uh, the unity that we do have as a church. Help us to be those who serve with humility, who look at our own hearts and uh, take on the attitude that Jesus had and to learn from him. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be those who do uh, look to the interests of each other and not to have selfish ambition or vain conceit as the things that characterise our lives. Lord, we pray that you forgive us for those times when we have been selfish and Lord, we do ask for the resolve uh, to live lives which are different and bring glory to you. We thank you for this time we share together now and we pray for your help to put these things into practice. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.